Good evening to each of you, and welcome. Uh, I have a handout this evening, if uh, Ricky John would uh, hand that out. Um, I'm not sure uh, how really how I didn't know how to go about this, and I feel sorry for you in some respects because this is like uh, jumping in with both feet and and starting uh, with a bang and no background uh, conversation just. Uh, distinctives I have I don't even know how many maybe uh, eight or nine and uh, I'm going to try to present uh, the Catholic Lutheran or Protestant and Anabaptist views on each of these distinctives And it's going to be, in some respects, uh, maybe, I shouldn't predict, but uh, for some of you it might feel dry and, uh, and a whole lot of history and a whole lot of uh, uh, what I'll call mucking around. And uh, maybe your boots are not high enough. And, uh, and I don't know how this will feel to you. So... Um, there's a lot of information. Uh, so I think I'm saying all this to say that you're going to have to, uh, I think, work to stay with it. Uh, part of the uh, reason for my handout is that it has a little bit of information on it uh, that might be helpful in the future, but for tonight, and Sunday night, it has uh, information on it that will help you know where I am. So I am following the outline that you had. Uh, this is not the whole outline, uh, and I probably won't get through all of this. Well, I'm sure I won't get through all of this tonight. So there will be more. Uh, Ricky John, could I have one of those sheets, please? I don't have a copy myself. Thank you. Okay, I want to start here with the uh, religious options, and this will be really fast. Um, you have Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, but when I talk about the Catholic view, I'm talking about Roman Catholic. And Lutheran, uh, beginning with Luther's um, nailing of the 95 theses on the um, cathedral door in 1517, uh, and his helper Melanchthon, that's a Lutheran. Then you have Reformed, what's called Reformed, and that includes uh, Zurich, the cities of Zurich, Geneva, and Strasbourg. In Zurich is Zwingli, uh, Leo Judd, and Bullinger. 
Geneva's Calvin, which is a little later, and Beza, and Strasbourg is Capito and Bucer. And then Scotland, John Knox was reformed. So you have Catholic, Lutheran, Reformed, and then Anabaptist. And uh, there were, uh, I have Anabaptist divided into three groups, <clears throat> the Swiss, the South German Austrian, and North German Dutch. And there's uh, some difference between each of these categories, and obviously when I talk about Anabaptist distinctives, these two sessions, I can't really uh, go into much distinction. I have to generalize somewhat, which in some things is maybe kind of painful for me, but it's just how it is. Uh, the Swiss uh, would be people like Grebel, Mons, Blanc-Roch, uh, Hubmeyer, to some extent, and Sattler, Michael Sattler. And uh, the Swiss, there was more emphasis on details. Uh, they, they were more like the Dutch, uh, more, much more like the Dutch than they would have been like the South German. So the Swiss and the, and the North German Dutch were similar in many ways. Uh, the emphasis on the Bible and the commands of the Bible, emphasis on the example and teachings of Christ, uh, no use of the sword, and no involvement in government. Uh, the South German uh, Austrian uh, was more... Um, more uh, influenced by mystic um, spiritualist uh, influences uh, and less, less concerned about details and more emphasis on the inner word or the Holy Spirit's influence or direction than on Scripture itself. Uh, that's not altogether fair, but it, I'm just saying that's a broad stroke. Um, and then the Austrian would, I, I have that there because of um, the Hutterites. Uh, <clears throat> our, our, um, the influences I would say for most of us are probably um, in the North German and Dutch, although maybe Swiss too, but uh, in the North German Dutch, there were three, uh, three phases to the North German Dutch Anabaptist uh, movement. Uh, in the first phase, uh, it was Hoffman, uh, these men, some of them have first names, and some of them have their name with their city. Uh, I think his name was um, Melker or something like that, Hoffman. Uh, he had a lot of emphasis on the return of Christ and uh, predictions, and uh, really, in some ways, I would say not a very stable leader. Uh, 
and uh, he ended up dying in jail, as I recall. Phase two was worse than phase one because of the emphasis on the use of the sword and uh, the the um, Munster uh, city where Anabaptists took over the city. And uh, it, it really was a disastrous um, attempt to establish the kingdom of God by use of the sword. Uh, many things happened there that are very much out of order. And then the third phase was uh, Dirk Phillips, Menno Simons, and uh, an attempt uh, to establish a disciplined church and an organized church and no use of the sword, and uh, there's a lot of resistance. Uh, there was a lot of uh, effort and energy put into trying to recover from uh, this disastrous uh, takeover of the city by Anabaptists. And maybe I should say, too, that I think uh, Anabaptists for maybe several centuries, and even to this day, uh, have been trying to convince people that they're not crazy like the people in, 19, in uh, 1535 in that city. So it was a very difficult time. So those are the three phases in the Dutch movement. Uh, B, Mennonites fit in the broad category of Anabaptists. Um, and while people who fit in the category of Anabaptist had a fairly broad range of beliefs about some things, uh, one example would be a church and state relationship, there was some diversity. Another one would have been uh, there were various views of the Trinity. That, that's true. A person was called Anabaptist if that person believed certain things, uh, apart from these little diversities. And they believed certain things that other people did not believe, and these beliefs were distinctly Anabaptist, and that those are the things we're going to look at. Uh, the term Anabaptist means uh, one who baptizes again. Uh, Zwingli's help of Bullinger used the word first, the term. Uh, Anabaptists did not like the term because they said that infant baptism was not a baptism. And so they did not see themselves as being re-baptized. They felt like they were, they were administering uh, a biblical baptism, which infant baptism was not, and so this was their first baptism. But that's Anabaptists baptized again or one who baptizes again. So Anabaptists were predominantly orthodox in their basic Christian beliefs, and I'm not going to uh, spend time uh, describing uh, all of their basic beliefs except in these distinctives. Uh, there's no evidence that they used uh, the, the uh, traditional creeds of the church in their worship services, but in their writings they referred to them at times. And so they, they made co positive comments about them, and so they, 
I would say Anabaptists, from all we can tell, were basically orthodox in their beliefs, uh, except, except for, um, if I may use the term, our, our dear men of Simons, who had an unorthodox view of, of uh, the humanity of Christ because he was uh, convinced that uh, Christ had brought his human body, flesh, from heaven because he did not want Mary to contribute to Christ's humanity. That was one issue. I don't think it really affected well, it did slightly some of his beliefs, but it, it's not like that turned out to be a uh, a problem of his view of Christ as a person. He just had that view of how he got his body. That was one issue, and another one, uh, the view of the Trinity, there was some diversity. Charges of heresy weren't about those things generally although Menel Simons got in quite a discussion with the Reformed over the body of Christ. But most of the conversations about uh, heresy were about things like infant baptism and separation of church and state and uh, use of the ban and uh, the Lord's Supper a Memorial. And, and especially, uh, they were accused of heresy because of their emphasis that on people living an upright life. And so they were accused many times of works religion and not, and not re really believing in faith in Christ, which, um, you know, Menel Simon's complete writings is a thousand pages. You can read that. I've read it, <clears throat> I don't know, several times. And uh, he goes to great lengths to defend and explain that uh, he does not believe in a works religion. But that was one of the accusations. Uh, I'm not sure if we'll talk about that very much or not. But if you want to, by the way, if you want to me to respond to questions uh, I think uh, Galen said to um, uh, if you would send them to me by email uh, before too late on Sunday that would be helpful uh, you, you will get a better answer if you send it earlier than, than for you to just tell me a question on Sunday night It'll, you'll get a more helpful answer if you do that Okay, major 16th century issues in uh, comparison with Catholic, Protestant, and Anabaptist answers. You know, start with the political, social, and economic issues. Um, uh, this, you could summarize the Anabaptist position by saying that they, uh, they, there was an insistence on a church without classes, no class distinctions. No divisions. That was one item. And the other was the rejection of the view that everyone in a geographical area has to be a member of the same religious body. 
Did that make sense? Okay, there's no classes, divisions between rich and poor, have-have-nots. That's one issue. And the other, uh, everyone in a geographical area does not need to be of the same religion. And, and by the way, concerning that last issue, nobody else, nobody else in the 16th century believed that. They, they were strange. And, and of course, by now, you know, in our day, we know most people in the world would believe what these Anabaptists did. Now, one way to think about it is that they were uh, living before their time. They had this strange idea that didn't fit the time. Okay, the medieval view of the political, social, and economic condition, the, the medieval view was that there's a fixed, everybody has a fixed place in society, and they have a place that God gave them, and it's given to them by the sovereignty of God, and you don't try to get out of the place you're in. And the second part of their view was that church and society are one and the same group of people. And from this idea grew the common notion that, first, everyone in society is Christian. And two, the religion of the territory should be determined politically, either by the political leader or by the political ruling body or council. And if it was determined by a council or ruling body, uh, the reality was it turned out to be the religion of the majority of people on the council. Zwingli and Luther and Calvin accepted the medieval view uh, Anabaptists, now that was brief, wasn't it? That didn't take long to say that, okay? Zwingli, Luther, and Calvin accepted the medieval view. Uh, Anabaptists said all people are equal, and social structures that build layers in society are wrong. Uh, in this, the Anabaptists identified with the peasants by talking about equality of human beings before God. And they also said when the demands of political authorities differed from the clear, clear commands of Scripture, you're bound to obey God rather than man. Uh, concerning economics, of course, this is in general. Anabaptists resisted the privileges of the nobility, the unbridled accumulation of profit and wealth. They resisted usury, uh, excessive interest, maybe interest at all, I'm not sure, but certainly excessive interest. And uh, some of them also resisted being in retailing, that is, making money as a middleman at the expense of others. 
some of them resisted that. Anabaptist church state view, there were uh, four or five views, and I will try to give them briefly. Uh, in Zurich, uh, Grebel and uh, the men with him there in, in uh, Zurich with Zwingli, at first they had, for the first maybe year, they had what I think could be called the medieval view. Uh, they thought that they could maybe win converts and get enough converts, and maybe they'd be, be uh, elected to the council, city council, and, and they could influence, have enough influence that maybe they could establish an Anabaptist church order. But uh, it did not take them long to figure out that that was not going to happen. And uh, they had abandoned that view by the time uh, before, actually before uh, the baptisms in January of 1525. Now, I'm not trying to make a big deal of that position, that early position. Uh, I think you have to understand that the, these men had no pattern. They had, they had no background. They, they had what they had. What, which was what was being done, and they are trying to figure out what, what's not working right here, what is not okay, what can be done. And uh, within one year, they had abandoned that. Um, there, there were some Anabaptists, a second view, who we would call full participation um, who, uh, two types here, the one was Hubmeyer, who basically wanted to establish, I'm sorry, I can't get the city he was in at the moment. He was trying to establish an Anabaptist citywide church. Uh, that, that, that was the only person, though, after, after uh, Zurich initially that way. Hubmeyer was the only person who tried to do that. And then there was the revolutionary uh, approach using arms. Uh, Thomas Munzer in uh, 1523 to 1525 uh, led what was called the Peasants' Revolt. Uh, he was an Anabaptist type person. Uh, that's one example of the revolutionary, and then uh, the city of Munster that I talked about a little bit ago. The third position, uh, radical dualism, uh, which uh, is probably best represented by the Schleitheim Confession. Everything outside the church now might be uh, I might be overstating this slightly, but everything outside the church is of the devil and should be avoided. Uh, there's, there's two kingdoms, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the devil. Uh, so it's a dualistic view, which I think many of us would embrace uh, 
to some extent, we, we could have conversation about that. Um, and the view with radical dualism is that the magistracy is a part of the unredeemed world and the Christian could not be a magistrate. Uh, the fourth position uh, was a l less radical uh, than the radical dualism, um, although I think in the end it worked out to be almost the same thing. Uh, cautious involvement. The government has been ordained by God to control the evil in the world, and if the government could carry out this function with Christian love, then the government could truly be considered Christian. Some Anabaptists talk like that. But uh, in the end, the conclusion they had was the government can't do that. That's not what is going to be happening. Uh, people, leaders do not exercise love in this way or follow the commands of Scripture. So... Um, there, there was the idea that maybe, maybe, because God is sovereign over civil rulers, but the, um, the realization that love does not, um, usually does not carry the day in government functions. Now, I'd like to uh, just give a few of uh, my reflections. I'll try to do this on most of these. Uh, the Anabaptists who survived uh, rejected the medieval view and believed that church and state are two distinct entities in society, that not everyone in a geographical area has to belong to the same church. That, that was a common Anabaptist belief. And as I said before, I think in this, Anabaptists were ahead of their time um, I believe we are called to be separate from evil, but we are also called to be a witness of kingdom principles to the people around us. Uh, Jesus prayed to his heavenly Father in John 17, if I am, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is true. So we have to find a way to live in the world and be a witness where we are. I had a professor at uh, Liberty who uh, had, had, before he was at Liberty, he was a teacher at, uh, professor at Grace, uh, Grace College in Indiana. And he, he said that he went, he moved, he wanted a job at Liberty because he was really enthused about the moral majority. And uh, you have to be a certain age to know what the moral majority was. Uh, Jerry Falwell and his involvement in government, in trying to influence government officials and policies and so on. And uh, he said in class one day that he, was, he had become very, very, this was in the 80s, he had become very disillusioned with the moral majority.
priority approach, and he said the reason he was disillusioned is because it is impossible, he said, for a believer with public office to vote exclusively according to his beliefs and conscience. There's too much evil. This is almost a quote. There is too much evil and too much vote trading. No, no government is going to accomplish in society and the hearts of people what the gospel and church of Jesus Christ can accomplish. That's what he said. Uh, I found that uh, quite fascinating for someone who had been committed to that point of view. And then after uh, hearing and seeing many things, came to that conclusion. And I'd say on church and state, I don't, I don't think most of us would uh, have uh, much of a question about uh, does it matter or is it biblical. I mean, for my part, I very much embrace that position, the Anabaptist position in that. The second one I have is the question of authority and tradition. Uh, the Roman Catholic view, uh, they believe that truth and grace are transmitted to the people through the clergy. They rejected the authority, uh, I'm sorry, they emphasized the authority of the hierarchy, the popes and the councils. And, and they did that in order to maintain, there were three reasons. In order to maintain pure doctrine, in order to maintain one truth position, and in order to control civil authorities. And so it was important to have one voice saying one thing, which of course didn't always happen. Uh, I think this was maybe 1300, something like that. There were actually two or three popes at the same time due to um, power struggles. I'm not sure all the details actually, but it was very unfortunate. And, uh, and uh, many people uh, came to question through that. that. That actually led up toward the Reformation. It was part of the reason for the Reformation. A lot of um, question about the authority, the integrity of the popes, the councils, the hierarchy. Uh, the Roman Catholic view, they believed that the decisions of the popes were infallible. They could not be wrong. Uh, and the decisions of the councils could not either. Uh, although Luther, in one of his um, debates, forget now which one, he said, uh, he said that that I cannot trust the uh, decisions of the councils because they've said different things at different times, and he gave some examples. <clears throat> that didn't really help him out any, but that's what he did. That's what he said. Um, the Roman Catholic view of uh, the authority of tradition, they said tradition is equal to Scripture. Uh, they said that... Uh, the Gospels were the record of an oral tradition. They said the epistles are the record of how Christ worked in the church after Christ was gone. Um, 
that's tradition. And, uh, and they said that so then the decisions of the popes and the councils are also uh, God, the Holy Spirit working through these men in councils, and that has the same authority as Scripture does, which I, I'm sure none of us agree with that, but that, that was the basic Roman Catholic view of authority and tradition. Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin uh, made uh, many statements and much effort, had put forth much effort and claims that they were going to get rid of tradition, uh, but they did not. Uh, the one, one, first of all, tradition they didn't get rid of was uh, the union of church and state. Uh, for Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin, uh, the congregation contributed nothing to interpretation or application of Scripture, and in many ways, I think the church life felt quite a bit like Roman Catholic church life. Anabaptists uh, were determined also to get rid of human traditions and civil authority and to root everything in the Scripture, the Holy Spirit, and the Christian community. They wanted uh, restitution. They wanted to, a return to the New Testament, not reform. They wanted to reclaim New Testament Christianity. They believed the Church of Jesus Christ uh, fell, lost its way, when Emperor Constantine became involved in church matters in 313. So they, they felt like the church had been fallen for centuries. They said, Anabaptists said, that unbelievers, unbelievers should have nothing to do with deciding how believers should live. Unbelievers should have nothing to do with trying to interpret the scripture. Uh, Part of the reason for saying that is because uh, they, they thought that uh, civil rulers were not believers in most cases, and they shouldn't be telling people what religion they have to be or what they have to believe, which was quite common. Beliefs and behaviors should be determined and monitored by the people who have covenanted together under the Lordship of Christ. That is a basic Anabaptist belief. Uh, got a few reflections here on this uh, distinctive. And, and this one is a little bit of a uh, tough subject. Or just some uh, reflections. I believe leaders and traditions have a valid place in the life of the church congregation. Uh, and this statement might surprise you, but 
I believe traditions are one of the vehicles by which beliefs and values are transmitted from one generation to the next. I don't think any group of people can live without traditions. Everybody has them. Some of them might be good, some bad, but everybody has traditions. It's, it's the vehicle by which beliefs and values are transmitted from one generation to the next. I also believe both the ordained leaders and tradition are a servant of and accountable to Jesus Christ, Scripture, and the congregation. I also believe that uh, tradition and values, all of these things, they, they do need uh, to be able to be talked about. This is one of the difficulties in the Roman Catholic Church where you could not have a conversation about the traditions. They were forever settled in heaven and on earth. Uh, the more, and I'm, I'm saying some of these things because of the Anabaptist struggles and the struggles even among Lutherans and Reformed, the more transparent and honest the ordained and non-ordained can be with each other about beliefs and issues and traditions, the better a congregation can function and make decisions that all embrace and support. Okay, the next one I have is views of baptism. Views of, are you still here and still awake? <laughs> that, was, that was a wake-up one, yes. Thank you. Okay, views of baptism. The Catholic view of baptism was infant baptism. Uh, and the belief that a baby, when they're baptized, they are regenerated. I don't know if they use the word born again, but regeneration. They believe that, in infant, that infant baptism removed the guilt of original sin, which means, the idea was that in baptism, the, the, the guilt for Adam committing the first sin was now removed in this child. The child is no longer guilty for Adam's sin. <clears throat> uh, Catholic theology said the value of Christ's work to reduce the grip of original sin is mediated through baptism, infant baptism, three ways. Infant baptism, penance, and the Lord's Supper. Martin Luther's view of baptism was also infant baptism. Uh, he argued uh, from two or three ways. I'll give two. He argues that he said that uh, infant baptism is right because it has uh, been happening for a long time. 
forgive me, but that, that is what he said. He said uh, God would, would not permit something wrong to continue so long. So infant baptism must be right. Luther also uh, argues from his view of how to use the Scripture, how to interpret Scripture. He said, and this is a common Lutheran and Reformed view, what God does not will, he speaks against in Scripture. And so, what is not forbidden in Scripture is allowed. Infant baptism is not forbidden in Scripture, so it is allowed. That's Martin Luther. Now, I'll make this comment about the use of Scripture. Uh, okay? Luther and Zwingli both said, you can do anything the Bible does not explicitly condemn. Okay, now, I should say, I think, uh, well, I should say the Anabaptist view, you can do only what the Bible commands. Give you just a little for your wheels to turn. Okay, Anabaptist, you can do only what the Bible commands. You cannot do what the Bible does not command. And Luther and Zwingli say you can do anything the Bible does not condemn. <clears throat> okay, now I don't I don't think either of those work. But I think, I think uh, in that day, okay, every, everything in that day was pretty much, pretty much like first century. It was pretty much like first century. I don't, I don't think they really realized that, that their principle would not work. They, they didn't have things that looked different than the New Testament. They didn't... It, it, I, that's just my thought about it. I don't think they realized how that principle would not work for some things. But I have a, I have a section later on the view of Scripture and I'll talk about that more. Okay, Zwingli's view of baptism was also infant baptism. At first, he questioned infant baptism. Uh, but in 1524, he decided to practice infant baptism, partly because of his view that society is a covenant of the elect. So he's still in the church state. Every, everybody there is a Christian. And he has the idea that they are basically like Old Testament Israel. And, and so baptism of infants for him was similar to circumcision in the Old Testament. 
the Anabaptist view, and, and this was the, re, the, the main reason that Anabaptists uh, went their own way, uh, forsook Zwingli. Uh, I failed to say something here. I wanted to say something about um, right here. Uh, <clears throat> here's what I have written down. It is an amazing coincidence that Hans Dank was banished from Nuremberg because of his Anabaptist-type leanings on the same day that the baptisms took place in Zurich, January 21, 1525. And they did not really know each other. They, there was not... <clears throat> there were a number of times when things like this happened in two or three different cities and people had no contact, you understand. They did not have a cell phone and they did not have email. And they really were quite alone. But that these things happened, which, which says that uh, God was up to something, I believe. Uh, Anabaptists uh, had this view of baptism. Only believers can be baptized. Um, they they relocated the value of Christ's work to reduce the grip of sin rather than it being as a Catholics in infant baptism and penance and mass, Anabaptists put it in confessional baptism. Now, uh, here are the verses they used, Matthew 28, uh, 18, 19. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go, go, and teach. Go ye therefore and teach. Uh, make disciples of all nations, all people groups baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them. So you have what they saw here was uh, you go and you teach, and, and uh, the process of making disciples is you teach and people respond, and then they, they believe and respond, and then you baptize them, and then you teach them further. Uh, and then Mark, even more so than Matthew, Mark uh, 16, 15, and 16, they use this, these verses a lot. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. So, they said, you go and you teach, and then the ones who believe. And then they said, no infant can believe. Uh, well, in, in conversations with Luther, his response to that reminder was that, well, it's the faith of the parents. 
that counts. So I'm just saying there were, there were many, many conversations among uh, Lutherans, Reformed, Anabaptists about these things, and uh, many comments made, some that we would think really aren't biblical at all. So this, this is the Anabaptist understanding of baptism, is that you have preaching of the gospel, teaching, and a person hears and believes and responds, and, and then there's baptism after that, and then there's further instruction. Uh, Anabaptist questions in that day were questions like this. Had, had infants, in fact, been baptized in, according to the New Testament record? And they said, no. No. No infants were baptized in the New Testament. They had this question. Should baptism be considered purely testimonial, as in the person testifies to a good conscience that something has already happened, or should baptism be considered uh, redemptive? And should something, should we be hoping for something redemptive to happen in baptism, or should something already have happened before baptism? And uh, I'll just say in general, I think Anabaptism tried to combine both ideas by saying that a person must have a good conscience prior to baptism, and that also that a person must experience being transplanted in the king, into the kingdom of Christ and experience the death and resurrection of Christ in their person, either prior to or at baptism. So these are my reflections. I think, uh, I believe that... Uh, Mennonites and Anabaptists were correct about believers' baptism. I do believe that is what Scripture teaches. I believe that uh, this is in general. Mennonites have struggled to know how to assist people who fail after baptism. Uh, I think there's been a tendency to focus more sometimes on, on the discipline people need for their failures rather than to focus on what they need in order to grow and become victorious. And I also believe that a common challenge, and this is not just Mennonites, this, this is many groups, a common challenge is what to do with children. How, how to help children grow in their Christian experience when they... Uh, Okay, some of this depends on how much child evangelism goes on. But when there's pressure put on, depending on how all this is handled and children respond, and it's then hard, generally it's hard to know how to help a child um, be secure in their relationship with Christ, um, help them find their place, 
uh, within the congregation, the community, when they're not baptized, when they're converted. And, and believe me, I'm not up here getting ready to give you some grand answer to these things. I'm just saying. Uh, there are questions that surround this, and they're very challenging questions. And, and in my view, they are questions that parents that, you know, that we need to talk about. I, I think one tendency has been that that children have gotten lost in the in the transition from seven years old to 15, and uh, they just get lost. I, I don't think anybody really knows quite what to do with them or how to handle their responses and so on. I'm not I'm not trying to be uh, critical here. I'm just I'm just saying that's my reflection. And another question that comes up often, and I heard this a lot in teaching classes at SMBI and FB, should baptism happen at conversion or await instruction? And uh, there's one thing I've found in talking with uh, people is that it really doesn't hurt. I mean, it doesn't help. It does not help to be dishonest. So the thing you have to say is that in the New Testament and in the early Anabaptist movement, baptism was soon after conversion. I, th I think that's true. But we would have to have more conversation about this if there was more going to be said. I'm not uh, trying to make a problem here. I'm just saying this is an issue people bring up. Um, we are out of time. Okay. <clears throat> We're going to stop this evening. And now, I, I don't know that it will help any if you do this, but it might, it might be good if you uh, pray about how, how we will finish these notes. <laughs> okay. I think that was three, and there's about, I don't know, five more. So, anyway, Lowell.